Chapter Thirteen of Howard's End. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Howard's End, by E. M. Forster. Chapter Thirteen. Over two years passed and the Schlegel household continued to lead its life of cultured but not ignoble ease, still swimming gracefully on the grey tides of London. Concerts and plays swept past them, money had been spent and renewed, reputations won and lost, and the city herself, emblematic of their lives, rose and fell in a continual flux, while her shallows washed more widely against the hills of Surrey and over the fields of Hertfordshire. This famous building had arisen. That was doomed. Today Whitehall had been transformed. It would be the turn of Regent Street to-morrow. And month by month the roads smelt more strongly of petrol, and were more difficult to cross, and human beings heard each other speak with greater difficulty, breathed less of the air, and saw less of the sky. Nature withdrew. The leaves were falling by midsummer. The sun shone through dirt with an admired obscurity. To speak against London is no longer fashionable. The earth as an artistic cult has had its day, and the literature of the near future will probably ignore the country and seek inspiration from the town. One can understand the reaction. Of Pan and the elemental forces, the public has heard a little too much. They seem Victorian. While London is Georgian— and those who care for the earth with sincerity may wait long ere the pendulum swings back to her again. Certainly London fascinates. One visualizes it as a tract of quivering grey, intelligent without purpose, and excitable without love, as a spirit that has altered before it can be chronicled, as a heart that certainly beats, but with no pulsation of humanity. It lies beyond everything— Nature, with all her cruelty, comes nearer to us than do these crowds of men. A friend explains himself. The earth is explicable. From her we came, and we must return to her. But who can explain Westminster Bridge Road, or Liverpool Street in the morning, the city inhaling, or the same thoroughfares in the evening, the city exhaling her exhausted air? We reach in desperation beyond the fog. Beyond the very stars, the voids of the universe are ransacked to justify the monster, and stamped with a human face. London is religion's opportunity, not the decorous religion of theologians, but anthropomorphic, crude. Yes, the continuous flow would be tolerable if a man of our own sort, not any one pompous or tearful, were caring for us up in the sky." The Londoner seldom understands his city until it sweeps him away, too, from his moorings. And Margaret's eyes were not opened until the lease of Wickham Place expired. She had always known that it must expire, but the knowledge only became vivid about nine months before the event. Then the house was suddenly ringed with pathos. It had seen so much happiness. Why had it to be swept away? In the streets of the city she noted for the first time the architecture of hurry, and heard the language of hurry on the mouths of its inhabitants, 
clipped words, formless sentences, potted expressions of approval or disgust. Month by month things were stepping livelier. But to what goal? The population still rose. But what was the quality of the men born? The particular millionaire who owned the freehold of Wickham Place, and desired to erect Babylonian flats upon it, what right had he to stir so large a portion of the quivering jelly? He was not a fool. She had heard him expose socialism. But true insight began just where his intelligence ended, and one gathered that this was the case with most millionaires. What right had such men— But Margaret checked herself. That way lies madness. Thank goodness she, too, had some money, and could purchase a new home. Tibby, now in his second year at Oxford, was down for the Easter vacation, and Margaret took the opportunity of having a serious talk with him. Did he at all know where he wanted to live? Tibby didn't know that he did know. Did he at all know what he wanted to do? He was equally uncertain, but when pressed remarked that he should prefer to be quite free of any profession. Margaret was not shocked, but went on sewing for a few minutes before she replied, I was thinking of Mr. Vice. He never strikes me as particularly happy. Yes, said Tibby, and then held his mouth open in a curious quiver, as if he too had thoughts of Mr. Vice, had seen round, through, over, and beyond Mr. Vice, had weighed Mr. Vice, grouped him, and finally dismissed him as having no possible bearing on the subject under discussion. That bleat of Tibby's infuriated Helen. But Helen was now down in the dining-room preparing a speech about political economy. At times her voice could be heard declaiming through the floor. "'But Mr. Vice is rather a wretched, weedy man, don't you think?' "'Then there's Guy. That was a pitiful business. Besides,' shifting to the general, "'every one is the better for some regular work.' Groans. "'I shall stick to it,' she continued, smiling. I am not saying it to educate you. It is what I really think. I believe that in the last century men have developed the desire for work, and they must not starve it. It's a new desire. It goes with a great deal that's bad, but in itself it's good. And I hope that for women, too, not to work will soon become as shocking as not to be married was a hundred years ago. I have no experience of this profound desire to which you allude," enunciated Tibby. "'Then we'll leave the subject till you do. I'm not going to rattle you round. Take your time. Only do think over the lives of the men you like most, and see how they've arranged them.' "'I like Guy and Mr. Vice most,' said Tibby faintly and leant so far back in his chair that he extended in a horizontal line from knees to throat. "'And don't think I'm not serious, because I don't use the traditional arguments—making money, a sphere awaiting you, and so on, all of which are, for various reasons, can't,' she sewed on. "'I'm only your sister. I haven't any authority over you, and I don't want to have any. Just to put before you what I think the truth. You see—' She shook off the pince-nez to which she had recently taken. "'In a few years we shall be the same age, practically, and I shall want you to help me. 
men are so much nicer than women. Labouring under such a delusion, why do you not marry? I sometimes jolly well think I would, if I got the chance. Has nobody asked you? Only ninnies. Do people ask Helen? <laughs> Plentifully. Tell me about them. No. Tell me about your ninnies, then. They were men who had nothing better to do," said his sister, feeling that she was entitled to score this point. So take warning. You must work, or else you must pretend to work, which is what I do. Work, 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 if you'd save your soul and your body. It is honestly a necessity, dear boy. Look at the Wilcoxes. Look at Mr. Pembroke. With all their defects of temper and understanding, such men give me more pleasure than many who are better equipped, and I think it is because they have worked regularly and honestly." Oh, "'Spare me the Wilcoxes,' he moaned. "'I shall not. They are the right sort.' "'Oh, goodness me, Meg!' he protested, suddenly sitting up, alert and angry. Tibby, for all his defects, had a genuine personality. Well, they're as near the right sort as you can imagine. No, no, oh, no! I was thinking of the younger son, whom I once classed as a ninny, but who came back so ill from Nigeria. He's gone out there again, Evie Wilcox tells me, out to his duty. Duty always elicited a groan. He doesn't want the money. It is work he wants, though it is beastly work. Dull country, dishonest natives, an eternal fidget over fresh water and food. A nation who can produce men of that sort may well be proud. No wonder England has become an empire. Empire? I can't bother over results, said Margaret, a little sadly. They are too difficult for me. I can only look at the men. An empire bores me so far, but I can appreciate the heroism that builds it up. London bores me. But what thousands of splendid people are labouring to make London? What it is, he sneered. What it is, worse luck. I want activity without civilization. How paradoxical! Yet I expect that is what we shall find in heaven. And I, said Tibby, want civilization without activity, which I expect is what we shall find in the other place. You needn't go as far as the other place, Tibbykins, if you want that. You can find it at Oxford. Stupid! If I'm stupid, get me back to the house-hunting. I'll even live in Oxford, if you like. North Oxford. I'll live anywhere except Bournemouth, Torquay, and Cheltenham. Oh, yes, or Ilfracombe, or Swanage, and Tunbridge Wells, and Surbiton, and Bedford. There on no account. London, then. I agree, but Helen rather wants to get away from London. However, there's no reason we shouldn't have a house in the country, and also a flat in town, provided we all stick together and contribute. Though, of course— Oh, how does one maunder on, and to think, to think of the people who are really poor! How do they live? Not to move about the world would kill me. 
As she spoke, the door was flung open, and Helen burst in, in a state of extreme excitement. "'Oh, my dears, what do you think? You'll never guess. A woman's been here asking me for her husband. Her what?' Helen was fond of supplying her own surprise. "'Yes, for her husband, and it really is so.' "'Not anything to do with Bracknell?' cried Margaret who had lately taken on an unemployed of that name to clean the knives and boots. I offered Bracknell, and he was rejected. So was Tibby. Oh, cheer up, Tibby! It's no one we know. I said, Hunt, my good woman, have a good look round. Hunt under the tables, poke up the chimney, shake out the antimacassars. Husband? Husband? Oh, and she's so magnificently dressed and tinkling like a chandelier. Now, Helen, what did happen, really? What I say! I was, as it were, orating my speech. Annie opens the door like a fool and shows a female straight in on me with my mouth open. Then we began, very civilly. I want my husband, what I have reason to believe is here. No, how unjust one is. She said, whom, not what. She got it perfectly. So I said, name, please. And she said, Lan, miss. And there we were. Lan? Lan or Len. We were not nice about our vowels. Lan o Len. That what an extraordinary! I said, my good Mrs. Lanolin, we have some grave misunderstanding here. Beautiful as I am, my modesty is even more remarkable than my beauty, and never, never has Mr. Lanolin rested his eyes on mine. I hope you were pleased, said Tibby. Of course, Helen squeaked, a perfectly delightful experience. Oh, Mrs. Lanolin's a dear, she asked for a husband as if he was an umbrella. She mislaid him Saturday afternoon, and for a long time suffered no inconvenience. But all night and all this morning her apprehensions grew. Breakfast didn't seem the same. No, no more did lunch, and so she strolled up to two Wickham Place as being the most likely place for the missing article. But how on earth— don't begin how on earthing. I know what I know, she kept repeating, not uncivilly, but with extreme gloom. In vain I asked her what did she know. Some knew what others knew, and others didn't, and if they didn't, then others again had better be careful. Oh, dear, she was incompetent. She had a face like a silkworm, and the dining-room reeks of orris root. We chatted pleasantly a little about husbands, and I wondered where hers was, too, and advised her to go to the police. She thanked me. We agreed that Mr. Lanolin's a naughty, naughty man, and hasn't no business to go on the la-di-da. But I think she suspected me up to the last. Bags I writing to Aunt Julie about this. Now, Meg, remember, bags I. <laughs> Bag it by all means murmured Margaret, putting down her work. "'I'm not sure that this is so funny, Helen. It means some horrible volcano smoking somewhere, doesn't it?' "'I don't think so. She doesn't really mind. The admirable creature isn't capable of tragedy.' 
"'Her husband may be, though,' said Margaret, moving to the window. "'Oh, no, not likely. No one capable of tragedy could have married Mrs. Lanolin.' "'Was she pretty?' Mm, "'Her figure may have been good once.' The flats, their only outlook, hung like an ornate curtain between Margaret and the welter of London. Her thoughts turned sadly to house-hunting. Wickham Place had been so safe. She feared fantastically that her own little flock might be moving into turmoil and squalor, into nearer contract with such episodes as these. "'Tibby and I have again been wondering where we'll live next September,' she said at last. "'Tibby had better first wonder what he'll do,' retorted Helen. And that topic was resumed, but with acrimony. Then tea came, and after tea Helen went on preparing her speech, and Margaret prepared one, too, for they were going out to a discussion society on the morrow. But her thoughts were poisoned. Mrs. Lanolin had risen out of the abyss, like a faint smell, a goblin football, telling of a life where love and hatred had both decayed. End of chapter 13